Let us pray. Gracious God, bring comfort to us and to our world this night and reveal to us the presence of Jesus Christ, who is our light and our hope. Amen. Before I begin, I'd li like to express my delight at being here among you this evening, and so I'd like to thank the dean and the cathedral community for welcoming the, the students and the staff and faculty of Trinity College into this community to worship with you. And as always, I am very grateful to delight uh, to, uh, to worship in the presence of the Trinity College Choir. So thank you, John Tuttle and the choir, for enlivening our worship with your music. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? These words from the prophet Isaiah capture the dilemma that the spirit of our age often leaves us in. In a cultural environment sometimes divided by angry polemics and division, many voices urge us to cry out, to denounce our opponents, to emphasize the errors of those with whom we disagree, to sit with our rage and our disappointment, to highlight the failings of the institutions we feel have let us down. And confronted by many pressing challenges, from climate change, rising social inequality, racism, sexism, gun violence in our city, persistent lingering colonialism, and tragedies caused by human panic and fear, we often feel compelled to cry out. And yet, at the same time, there are signs that many of us are becoming rather cynical about the utility and the effectiveness of such cries. Many resonate with another voice in Isaiah's text. Although we feel compelled to cry out, we also feel powerless to utter anything truly meaningful. Cry out, but what then shall I cry? All people are like grass. Their constancy is like the constancy of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. We encounter this sentiment in many aspects of public life today, do, do we not? In a time of international clashes, of Brexits, polemical tweets, fear of strangers, and tense moral disputes even within our own churches. Various tensions between us and between them leave us weary of confrontation cynical towards debate and dialogue, and tempted to avoid with those with whom we disagree at almost any cost. For all the talk of the ways in which social media confines us to a filter bubble, there is a sense in which we anxiously cling to these bubbles and even try to construct them ourselves. For it's clear there is a great deal of shifting going on around us, of change leading to uncertainty. And it seems often our lives are increasingly centered on identity 
and on belonging instead of on ideas and moral convictions. We want to know who we are and where we belong. We may not understand what's going on on in our world, but at least we can try to plant our feet firmly on somewhere that feels familiar. And scholars describe this desire for firm identities and boundaries in many different ways as a return to clan-based mentalities, as protectionist nationalism, or sometimes as a division between anywheres, by which is meant educated urban people who embrace diversity and globalization, and rural somewheres who understand themselves as rooted exclusively in a local environment in which they grew up. However we express this dynamic, the pace of change and transformation is such that many people long for a clear identity marker and a social role that will enable them to feel secure and in control. And so many retreat into what they know, withdraw into the familiar and the comfortable, and conclude that someone who isn't part of our own circle is completely contrary to where we're coming from. And as such, this is what many of us may be tempted to imagine and hope for tonight when we hear Isaiah say to us, Comfort, comfort my people. The comfort of the safe and the familiar, of being restored to secure and well-fortified identities and locations, of encountering what we know and what we trust. And then the voice of John the Baptist interrupts and stands this temptation of ours on its head. John announces to us that what matters, what's truly important, is not where we're coming from, is not what we know, but it's where we're going and what we are about to encounter. The people that God calls together as a church come from many different places, but we're all going towards the same place. And this is the good news and the comfort announced by the prophet Isaiah. This is the hope we embrace this evening. This is the vision that reorients our hearts and our actions in confusing and in troubled times. For everything John's gospel says about John the Baptist emphasizes the extent to which he arrives as an outsider, an unruly man from the wilderness. In our text, John emphasizes that he actually has no connection with Jesus of Nazareth, noting, I myself do not know him. John directs our attention to Jesus not because he is just like him, or because John knows where he's coming from exactly, but because of the way in which Jesus points to the Father in heaven towards which we are all headed. This is what John highlights when he says, I saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes 
with the Holy Spirit. What John emphasizes at the baptism of Jesus is that Jesus reorients and transforms our identities. This is what it means to be baptized and joined to Christ. We let go of our own desperate belonging to ourselves and allow, allow ourselves to become owned by God to have our vision shift from where we've come from to where we are going, to that kingdom of heaven that God is calling us to live into. And so Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior. And tonight at the baptism of Jesus, we turn and say we recognize who that Savior is and from whence he is coming. The polarizations, the mistrusts and divisions that our society tempt us to, to adopt encourage us to retreat into ourselves. And this temptation is often fueled by the wounds and disappointments that others have caused us. Situations of loss and sadness often encourage a tendency to flee and to withdraw and to shut out the rest of the world. This occurs when mourning turns to melancholy, a situation when grievance is clung on to to such an extent that it becomes a permanent part of one's own identity and thus becomes inattentive and avoiding of what is seen as a dangerous and wounding world. This week, of course, we all have significant reasons to grieve. Beyond our own personal sorrows, many in this city and across our country have been mourning the loss of the 176 people who died when Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752 crashed in Iran. And we've seen understandable outpourings of grief. And this, of course, is necessary, understandable. And to some extent, we have all been grieving over this. And thankfully, we have seen few signs in our midst of the lashing out or the running to retreat. And this honors the lives of those who have died and testifies to the love and care of their family and friends. Yet as, as I've reflected on our readings this evening, I've been reminded as well that at such times of mourning, whether public ones or our own personal ones, we often confront the temptation to withdraw and to hide. And this brought to mind a documentary I watched recently on the terrorist attack in Paris on November 2015, the five-year memorial was, of course, recently, which illuminates another temptation those who are baptized in Christ need to guard against. In an interview with a man who survived the shooting frenzy that killed 138 people in the Bataclan nightclub, he describes how, as he lay on the floor pretending to be dead, the way he found to cope 
was to create what he describes a bubble of humanities, three square centimeters large, around himself to make himself feel better. He acknowledges, however, that this required adopting a dehumanizing indifference to all the suffering going on around him beyond that tiny bubble of security. And perhaps that bubble of humanity he, crea he generated for himself was necessary at the time, but over the course of the documentary, it seems like he's got that bubble pretty securely still constructed around himself many years after this horrific event. So although there is a sense in which times of challenge and uncertainty do tempt us to form a small bubble of protection around ourselves, to circle our emotional wagons, this comes at the cost of being unable to pay attention to what's going on outside our little bubble. And yet, just as Christians are called by Jesus to move beyond their former identities and to learn to focus on where we're being called towards, we also need to recognize that the comfort we are to seek after is not the comfort of an isolated three square centimeters that forms a bubble of security around us. Instead, this comfort is an ever-expanding horizon of humanity that grows to embrace all people and all of creation. This is the comfort offered and promised by God in the words of the prophet Isaiah. And this is the transformed vision that John experiences at the baptism of Jesus. And this message interrupts and reorients any cynicism our age is tempted towards. It's a hope and an expectation that allows us to say with Isaiah, yes, the grass may wither and fade, but the words of our God will stand forever. Those who know this can lift up their voice with strength and live without fear. So this evening, as we listen together to the words of Scripture and to the harmonies of music, let's turn our hearts and minds to that vision of heaven opening up around us and around Jesus at his baptism. And remember, and remember that through our own baptism, we are all welcomed as citizens into this heavenly family of saints that will embrace us and comfort us, whatever challenges may come. Amen.